I'm going to read a letter from a woman about a very deep personal hurt. She wrote, I caught my husband with another woman. He said that he would break off the relationship and swore that it would never happen again. He begged me to forgive him, but I could not. I would not. I was hurt so deeply and became so bitter and so incapable of swallowing my pride that I could think of nothing but revenge. I was going to make him pay and pay dearly. I'd have my pound of flesh. I filed for divorce. And even though my children begged me not to, even after the divorce, my husband tried for two years to win me back. I refused to have anything to do with him. He struck first. Now I was striking back. All I wanted was to make him pay. Finally, he gave up, married a a lovely young widow with a couple of small children. He began rebuilding his life without me. I see them occasionally, and he looks so happy. They all do. And here I am, a lonely, old, miserable woman who allowed her selfish pride and foolish stubbornness to ruin her life. You know, friends, unfaithfulness is wrong. Revenge is bad. But the worst part of all is that hatred, resentment, and grudges are all a person has left to live on if there is an unwillingness to forgive when wronged and sinned against. And the real joys of life and living are lost when we seek our pound of flesh from the person or persons that may have hurt us. Perhaps you're here today, this morning, and you've been abused as a child or a young person. Or you're here today and were treated unfairly. Your spouse maybe betrayed you. Or a business partner bailed out on you, leaving you a choice between bankruptcy or bills. Or maybe your close circle of friends planned to go out together and they didn't invite you. Or someone else got the recognition for something that you deserved. Or someone violated a personal confidence of yours and and now it's as if the whole world knows about it. Maybe you've been employed with a company for 10, 15, 20 years. You were a faithful employee. You made money for the company and they come to you and go, it's nothing personal, but we need to let you go. And you're hurt. And the fires of your anger burn white hot. And the bitterness has turned into a consuming inferno. And when those things happen, you're left with a decision. When you've been sinned against. When you've been hurt because of somebody else's sin or negligence. You're left with the decision of, do I put the fire out by pouring the water of God's grace and forgiveness upon it? And allow healing to take place? Or do I heat it up by putting the wood of revenge and retaliation on that fire and allow the hurt to turn into hate? I love what Max Lucado said about resentment in his book titled The Applause of Heaven. I quote, he says, Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke, stoke, feed, and fan 
the fires, stirring the flames, reliving the pain. Resentment is the deliberate decision to nurse that offense until it becomes a black fury, growling, grudge, deep, dark hole. That's what resentment is. That's what bitterness is. Well, I would like us this morning to see how we can deal with the sins against us and and the associated hurts that, that inevitably come. And not allow them to turn into hate, to resentment, or grudges. And we'll do that by by looking at the life of a man who had every natural or every human reason to harbor and hold on to, to hatred, resentment, and hold a grudge. But he didn't. He didn't. And that person is Joseph, the, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible as we look at his life this morning, raise your hand and one of our ushers will will loan you one because we're going to walk through the latter part of the book of Genesis as we consider the life of Joseph and how he experienced sins against him but didn't allow those sins to turn into hate, resentment, or a grudge. What I love about the lives of, of Bible characters, particularly those in the Old Testament, and what fires me up about them is that they are divinely inspired biographies of real-life people that distill truth and weave it into the fabric of, of everyday living to teach us, to encourage us, to warn us, to help us understand how to live a God-honoring life in a very fallen world. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, He says, for whatever was written in former days, it's for us, former days, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, or through the encouragement of the lives of these Old Testament characters, or any biblical character, we might have hope and have answers as we deal with a lot of life's junk. Well, as we look this morning at the life of Joseph and how he dealt with life and all of its injustices, it is for our instruction this morning, our encouragement, our hope to know that if Joseph could act in a God-honoring way in the midst of such ungodly circumstances, so can you, so can I. Well, the first thing that we must recognize to keep the sin against us and the associated hurts from turning into hate is that you must be assured that God is with you no matter what happens to you or what somebody does to you. In the book of Genesis, chapter 37, we're going to be walking through a number of different chapters, so hang on, folks. Here we go. Joseph, in Genesis 37, is seen as the favorite son of his father Jacob. You're familiar with the code of, of many colors. Well, out of jealousy and hate for Joseph, his brothers turn against him and they first plot to kill him, but but his brother Reuben intervenes and convinces them to throw him into a deep hole, to, to let him die with the real intentions of him going back, returning to the hole to rescue him and take him back to his father. But before he's able to do that, his other brothers see a caravan of merchants on their way to Egypt. And so maybe with an attempt at at easing their their guilty conscience or maybe a softening of their feelings for their younger brother, they decide to to sell Joseph to them. And this is the first sin of injustice and, and wrong that is leveled against Joseph. 
that triggers a whole set of other events that fall like dominoes in Joseph's life. Now, there were times growing up that my two brothers and I didn't get along, but never did it go to this extreme where we wanted to sell somebody. We may have thought about it, but we never acted on it. You talk about dysfunctional and a family that struggled with dysfunction. This was a family. But what is so incredible is this man, this young man, Joseph, in spite of the circumstances, in spite of what he grew up with and around, the kind of godly character he was able to exhibit. In chapter 39, Joseph is in Egypt, and he's been sold to an Egyptian official by the, by the merchants of the caravan to a man named Potiphar. And Joseph becomes his personal servant. Now notice chapter 39, verses 2 through 5 of Genesis. The author writes, he says that the Lord was what? The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. God's working in spite of what he'd already experienced. But while Joseph is experiencing the presence and the goodness of God, serving in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife begins to make sexual overtures towards Joseph. But Joseph doesn't give in to the, to the repeated advances. And so her rejection turns into anger. And she wants revenge. So she falsely accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. And, and when Potiphar hears about it, he believes his wife and has Joseph thrown in jail. But notice chapter 39, verses 20 through 23. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. Again, another injustice, another reason to hold a grudge, resentment. It says, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Friends, you must be assured that God is with you no matter what happens to you or what someone does to you. Well, then in chapter 40, Joseph, still in prison interprets a dream for two of Pharaoh's domestic servants who had fallen into disfavor with the Pharaoh. Well, the dream of the cupbearer revealed that this cupbearer was going to be restored back into the favor of the, of the Pharaoh and released to serve him once again. Well, if you're familiar with the story, it's the baker who's going to lose his head. And so Joseph asked the cupbearer, look at chapter 40, verses 14 and 15. Joseph says, he says, only remember me when it is well with you 
And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this place or this house, this prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Okay? But then notice verse 23 of chapter 40. Yet, or but, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot about him. Injustice after injustice after injustice after injustice after sin after sin of neglect. Joseph. Every reason to hold a grudge and resentment. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't at all. Why was it that Joseph didn't allow the herd of all the sins and injustices of the pit? The sale to the merchants? The false accusation of Potiphar's wife? Jail and then forgotten by the cupbearer for two years to turn into hate? Resentment? Or grudge? I'm going, friends, this is a real live person. It's a real person. I think the reason why Joseph didn't allow that stuff to turn in the kind of bitterness that often turns into bitterness for us is because through everything that Joseph experienced, every hurt that he had, every injustice that was done to him, he knew that his God would never abandon or leave him. You see, friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, you have the certain promise of the Word of God Himself when He said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Or, or turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you have this certain promise and hope. In Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 35, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, he says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? In the midst of injustice and sins and hurts, God is with us. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. You see, Joseph knew the truth of Psalm 23 even though it hadn't been written yet. Because, see, he was going through a valley of the shadow of death. And he could place his total confidence in God because his God was with him no matter what. And he could say with confidence, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, the second thing that we must understand if if we are not going to allow our hurts to turn into hate, is that you must recognize that your circumstances are being divinely directed or allowed by God. In chapter 41, Joseph spends those two years in jail until a rather miraculous event takes place. 
Pharaoh has a dream, and none of his sorcerers or wise men are able to interpret it. But then the cupbearer of Pharaoh remembers that there was a man that he was with in prison that was able to interpret dreams. And that man was Joseph. And so Joseph is brought to Pharaoh and he interprets the dream which foretells of seven years of abundance that are going to be followed by seven years of great famine throughout the land. Joseph then suggests a plan to Pharaoh to prepare for the famine and that leads to Joseph being appointed the prime minister of Egypt. Talk about moving from the pit to the pinnacle of life. And so when the famine comes, it is so great. The truth of that dream becomes a reality. And the famine, when it comes, it is so tremendous that it affects even the land of Cana. Where Joseph's family, where his father were. Interesting that Jacob hears that there is grain in Egypt. And so what, what Jacob does is he, he, sends his ten, he sends ten of his sons to go buy grain for the family. And the ten brothers of Joseph are surprised when they discover that the one that they need to, to see for the grain is Joseph. The brother they'd sold into slavery many years ago. As I thought about that, God's got a great sense of humor. Incredible. But what is even more incredible is the fact that despite the chain of injustices that that Joseph's brothers had set into motion because it was his brothers who set that, pushed that first domino over that then led to all of the other dominoes of, of injustices impact Joseph's life. His reaction shows his complete forgiveness of his brothers. Look at Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45, beginning at verse 5. He says there, and now, this is Joseph talking to his brothers. He says, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Underline that. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, verse 7, before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God who sent me. It was God. He's made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Wow. Three times in this passage of Scripture, Joseph states that it was God who sent him to Egypt. Joseph realized that it was God who was divinely directing his steps and circumstances even in the midst of the injustices and sin against him. And because Joseph knew that, there was no way that he could hold a grudge or be bitter towards his brothers because he knew the hand of God was actively working. God was divinely directing or allowing certain things to take place. Now, you see, friends, if Joseph had spent all of his time and, and energy focused on coming up with reasons why he didn't deserve the unjust treatment and focused on those that were part of, of the cause it would have been very easy for his hurt to have turned into hate 
resentment and bitterness. And never would he have understood that it was God who was actively working in his heart and his life and in and through his circumstances. But you see, Joseph's focus was upon God with an understanding that he serves a God that is in control. And even when life seems out of control and chaotic, be assured, God is still on the throne. And because Joseph's focus was upon God and the certainty of God's goodness and character, Joseph could not ultimately blame his brothers. And his hurt didn't turn into hate or resentment towards them. I was 10 years old when my mother divorced my dad and left my two brothers and me for another man. And for the longest time, I held on to a deep resentment and contempt for my mother because of what she did and how deeply it hurt me. It wasn't until I came to know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior at the age of 13 and began to to understand that, that God didn't direct that divorce. God didn't direct the sinful choices. God didn't direct the selfish, selfish choices of my mother. But God did allow it to happen. And he used the ungodly circumstances of the breakup of a home to bring something good from it. The salvation of my dad. The salvation of my mother. Of my stepmother. And some other family members. And I've come to realize that when God makes something right... And he will in his time. It doesn't mean it was right, but it will be all right. You see, when we recognize that God is working through what appears to be confusing, chaotic situations, and we recognize that what appears to not make any sense, God is making sense and working a plan that we may not fully understand until sometime later. And that's the truth of Romans 8.28. And we know that for all those who love God, that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Very important when you consider that verse. The Apostle Paul says, God works all things, plural. When we reflect on life and all of the injustices and all of the challenges and all the hurts and all the junk that's there, and you look at one single event, it is going to make a lot of sense. But it's only after a series of what seems to be complicated, chaotic, unjust situations in our life that when we put the whole together and we see the beautiful thing that God is bringing to reality, we can then understand that God is in the process of working. But how important it is for us to stay faithful and focused upon God. And you see, when we allow bitterness and hurt, resentment, holding a grudge against somebody who has sinned against us, and we experience the hurt, we're not going to see God working because we are so self-consumed with what's going on inside of us. Well, the third thing that we must understand if we're not going to allow the hurts to turn into hate is that you must respond to others with forgiveness, grace, and mercy as God has responded to you. In chapter 45 and 46, Joseph makes preparations for his entire family to come to Egypt with the blessing of Pharaoh. Again, God's working his plan. And Joseph is faithful in, in surrendering his life, his will, and his attitude to God. 
Jacob and his family of 70 arrive in Egypt and, and they're given a portion of land as their own. And then in chapter 49, after 17 years, 17 years in Egypt, Jacob dies. And Joseph's brothers begin to wonder whether or not Joseph's attitude of compassion and provisions were more for the benefit of his father and to stay in the good graces with his father than an act of genuine forgiveness towards his brothers. So playing on Joseph's devotion to his father, his brothers write a letter to ensure his continued goodwill. Look at chapter 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died, which probably didn't. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And notice, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. You know, with this letter, Joseph is faced with another situation that could lead to bitterness. I mean, for years he's provided for his brothers and their families with, with nothing but the best. And now they're doubting his sincerity. And as a result, Joseph weeps. He weeps. Joseph could have resented their lack of trust. And I'm thinking to myself, what's the deal here? They still don't understand? But Joseph responds with compassion and understanding and says in verses 19, 20, and 21, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see, he responded with forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Not revenge, not bitterness. Even though he had it within his means to get back at him, he didn't. He didn't. What an example for us. So how do we respond to others with forgiveness, grace, and mercy? Do we just power up and make it happen? It doesn't work. Do we just try a little bit harder? Do we just really go after this thing? There's more to it than that. So how do we respond to others with forgiveness, grace, and mercy? How do you let go of the hurt and the hatred that may be there? 
Let me share four truths or four steps to genuine forgiveness of others. It must first begin by recognizing your own sinfulness and rebellion towards God and the provisions of forgiveness of your own sin. That's the first step. It is recognizing your own sinfulness and your own rebellion towards God and the provision of forgiveness that he has made for you. That's what will allow you to freely forgive someone who has hurt you. You see, when you begin to see the depth of your sin, when I begin to see the depth of my sin and the pain and the hurt that my sin, that your sin cost Jesus Christ, a cruel cross of unfathomable suffering, and Jesus Christ, as he hung from that cross, said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And when I understand all that my sin has done to Jesus Christ, and he was willing to say, Kent, I forgive you, there isn't any way that I should be able to hold on to a grudge, resentment, or have an unforgiving spirit towards somebody else when I recognize all that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of. And he has forgiven me a lot. And he's forgiven you a lot. You know, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind and loving to each other. And forgive each other. Why? Or how? As God forgave you in Jesus Christ. When we recognize and acknowledge our deep sinfulness and the, for, and the forgiveness of that sin because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it's then from that same reservoir of forgiveness that we should find the capacity to forgive others. You've heard the statement, Hurt people hurt people? Well, forgiven people forgive people. Someone who's not embraced or somebody who is not experiencing the grace and the forgiveness of God in their own life will struggle with extending grace and forgiveness to others. So what do we do then? What's the second truth or the second step of forgiveness? It's to acknowledge the debt. It's to recognize the debt. It's to feel the pain of the sin done against you. It's not to just slough it off. It's not to ignore the hurt. Because if somebody has deeply hurt us and they come to you and, and they in just a very you know, shallow fashion say, oh, can you forgive me? But yet the hurt has been so deep, so intense, and we just very quickly go, oh, yeah, that's not a big deal. They walk away feeling as if they are f- forgiven. But then we step back and we're carrying this incredible debt. Because we've not truly experienced or acknowledged the depth of the hurt and the pain. And we haven't really forgiven them because they don't know the extent of the hurt. That's what I believe Joseph did when in Genesis chapter 50, verse, uh, 50, verse 17, it said, Joseph wept. And he said, as for you, you meant evil against me. He didn't just slough it off and said, hey, no big deal. That's a part of a dysfunctional family, yada, yada, yada. Okay, no. He wept bitterly. He felt the pain. He experienced the depth of of the hurt that he was going through. And he said, you meant evil against me. He acknowledged to them what their actions had done. He was acknowledging the hurt and the pain that their actions caused. You see, you need to get to the heart of the pain so that you can forgive from the heart and express the pain to the one that has sinned against you. Now, at that point, you're ready to take the third step, which is you choose to forgive. You choose to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice that we make. 
It's an act of our will. It's a decision to let go of our right to hold this offense over this person. And with God's help, we choose to forgive. We acknowledge the pain. We talk about the depth of the hurt. And then we say, and I forgive you. I forgive you. And you say what it's for. That I forgive you. Forgiveness, it's a wonderful thing. Until we have to forgive somebody who sinned against us and hurt us. Then forgiveness is not so wonderful because it is extremely difficult and it's extremely painful. But the reality is that we are all sinners, every single one of us. And our sin hurts people and we get hurt as well by the sinful choices of others. But the choice we have is what we are going to do when we are sinned against. Forgiveness is a choice and it is a journey. It is a choice and it is a process. The hurt doesn't just disappear because we say a couple of words like, yes, I forgive you. And make the choice. I love what C.S. Lewis said about forgiveness. He said, to forgive for the moment is not necessarily difficult. But to go on forgiving to forgive the same offense every time it occurs to the memory, that's the real challenge. That's the challenge. You see, we may have to come to Jesus again and again and again for his help living out this forgiveness decision. Because when we have to keep letting the hurt go, it drives us to the cross again and again and again. You see, even after 44 years since my parents' divorce, I've had to daily commit myself to forgive my mother every time something triggers a memory or an emotion about the divorce and the abandonment. And I'm only able to do that by taking the memory and the emotions back to the foot of the cross where I am reminded of just how much God has forgiven me. And when I do that, I can live in freedom and not let the sins and the hurts against me to turn into hate or bitterness. It's taking it back to the foot of the cross. There's a final step of forgiveness. It's a step that I think we sometimes don't recognize, but that final step is confessing. It's confessing your own sinful response to the sin against you and the resulting hurt. You see, even if you were the victim, even if you were the one who was sinned against and the hurt was deep and the wounds were significant, you often respond to that hurt in a sinful way. I know I have. You make vows to, to never trust that person again because they've sinned against you. To never get close to that person again. Or you harbor bitterness and hatred in, in your heart and you hold on to this offense over their heads and, and you attempt to control them because you are controlling them by not forgiving them. You see, friends, you need to confess that. You need to confess those kind of responses to the Lord because it's only then that you can experience His forgiveness that will then allow you to extend forgiveness to those that have hurt you. And that only comes as you take it to the cross. You see, we have in the past and will in the future experience sins against us. 
We live in this fallen world. And we're going to experience hurts, heartache, and pain. We're going to be wounded deeply by even the ones that we love and by those who say they love us. And you see, the wounds are going to be deep. You've heard the statement that time heals all wounds. It's not true. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Sanitized wounds heal. And the only way in which wounds can be healed is that we take it to the cross. Today, God's inviting you to come and receive his forgiveness and extend it to others. That's what's needed. But it all begins at the foot of the cross. Because when we understand how much Jesus Christ has forgiven us, has forgiven you, has forgiven me, we should then be able, from that reservoir of our own forgiveness, be able to extend it to others. But it is a daily, moment by moment, choice that we have to make. You know, one of the toughest things for people to do is to forgive. But friends, recognize how much Jesus Christ has forgiven you. And when you understand that, you should have the capacity to be able to extend forgiveness to others. Would you pray with me?